Welcome to Maidens of Metal and Mayhem, a podcast about all things metal, horror, with a dash of mayhem. Welcome to this week's episode. We are going to be discussing the classic cult horror film, Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1992. Thought it'd be a good transition from talking about goth and like all things spooky and horror. We could talk about one of the biggest goth, uh, I think, influences of ever, which is Dracula, our favorite vampire boy. Mm-hmm. Dracula, and especially in the in the 90s. It's definitely influenced, uh, I would say, that new romance goth look and music. So definitely one of my favorites is the Bram Stoker's Dracula of 1992. Definitely campy, definitely romance, horror, a lot of interesting themes and theories, as well as, you know, thoughts of the women of the day. Oh, yeah, exactly. One of my favorite things about this movie is it is both camp to the extreme. It's that 90s really cheesy camp, but also you can almost pause on every single shot and it is a beautifully shot film. Like, it is gorgeous. And that's one of my favorite things about this specific version and reimagining of Dracula is I think it's a fair representation of the book itself. They definitely added and omitted some things from the main story plot lines. But it just has that really lovely, like, 90s, like, gothy, like, camp vibes that I really enjoy. There's a lot of really nice practical effects, but definitely some cheese throughout, which I feel like just gives it, like, that beautiful, like, 90s charm. And, I mean, they really do have uh, a lot of really fantastic actors and actresses in this movie. Uh, I would say probably the most campiest thing is Keanu Reeves' accent. I'm just waiting for him to be like, dude, Dracula, like, so cool, man. You know, like, I'm just waiting for him to do that in the movie. However, he doesn't. But he was young. He was a young actor. So was Winona Ryder. I do love her as Mina because she she does have that, like, um, regal gentleness about her, her look, her aesthetics. and. Uh, her her voice as well so i thought she played a, a good amina and of course you know gary Oldman, he's just amazing mm-hmm. like no one better for dracula he he can play anything he's been in so many different movies he's definitely a character actor because there's some movies where i'm like that's gary Oldman." <laughs> i definitely find him very attractive as dracula in this movie other movies, I don't find him attractive at all. Okay, but which Dracula? Like, old man, wrinkled, shriveled, harried palm Dracula or young Dracula? I'm assuming young Dracula. Young Dracula, yes. I I could do without the white wrinkles and um, butt hair. <laughs> the You know, the whole butt hair is, is just not a, a good look or attractive in any way. But I think that's kind of like a uh, like the whole point is he's like this gross, detestable old man, and he turns into this beautiful, you know, long curly hair um, prince 
Oh, yeah. And I really enjoyed um, because I've I've read the book, too, like forever ago. And what I found really nice with this movie specifically is how it took a lot of smaller elements from the book and really kind of kept them through in the movie. So like the fact that when Jonathan first meets Dracula, you know, Dracula speaking in like broken English, he has a really thick Eastern European accent. He isn't the best at communicating in English. And then as he spends time with Jonathan and in the book, he's like draining him of his blood. But in the movie, they're just kind of he has him as prisoner. He slowly starts to kind of take on an English accent. He's speaking fluently. He's speaking very modern Victorian British vernacular and stuff like that. So I think it was a really interesting way to kind of take some of the pieces from the book and integrate it throughout the actual narrative of the movie. And we discussed his with his hair. I I personally thought they were just getting his hair constantly wrong throughout the movie because his hair constantly changes. Oh, you mean Jonathan's hair? Yeah, Jonathan Harker's hair. It goes from a little bit of gray to like really gray. And then in some scenes, it's not gray at all. But um, as we discussed in the book, that he's his hair does drastically change throughout the movie or throughout the book. Yeah, and that's just from the horrors that he's witnessed and seen. And I mean, again, from him being constantly drained of blood and basically kept as, you know, blood drained as humanly possible to keep him alive. He was a blood bag. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was just left to Dracula's brides to just do with what they wanted after he pretty much abandoned them. And so, I mean, if you're constantly being drained of blood and being horrified, your hair would probably turn gray or white. Yeah, and it it is. It changes. It constantly changes throughout the movie. I just thought they were messing up the makeup (laughs) because it changes so much. I mean, it could have been that, too. (laughs) Who knows? It could have been. I mean... It, it like you said, it is a campy movie, so it's not a perfect movie in the sense of you know they got everything right, like the accents and all that. But it is that perfect little nineteen nineties capsule. Oh yeah, exactly. And again, I think it's a really fair, like movie adaptation of the book. They definitely added in a bunch of things and took out some things, like Mina being the reincarnation of Elisabetta. That's not in the books, but I think it's a really interesting way to kind of tie Mina and Dracula together and make it make give it more of a reason why Dracula would even want to turn her into a vampire in the end. And you and I also wonder if perhaps that came from the the Strahd D&D game, because that did come out before the movie. And that is a plot line of Strahd. We both have played the uh, campaign multiple times. To know that the love of his life, Irina, dies and comes back. You mean um, Tatiana? Uh, Tatiana, that's correct. So, yeah, I, 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 I think you're right um, when we discussed that earlier that that's a possibility. You know, D&D has influenced quite a few movies throughout the years. Exactly. I mean, it also gives it kind of almost like the uh, Romeo and Juliet thing, the star-crossed lovers reunited in a second life like it's that kind of feeling but definitely with a darker more like gothy vibe where it's you know finding each other in like undeath in a second life kind of thing yeah it's definitely a absolute tragedy start to finish oh for sure and I also think just looking at it just like how women are represented in the movie and in the book itself too I think it's a really interesting piece of work I think it has a lot of commentary on 
the new woman of the Victorian era and just like a cautionary tale or kind of a critique on women just kind of getting more agency in society and being able to do more that they want to do without having to have men constantly like helping them out or being with them. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely commentary between Lucy and Mina because Mina is the more innocent, the more prudish, but she's incredibly intelligent. She's a school teacher where Lucy is, she is virtuous. Mina does state that she's virtuous, meaning she's intact, but she's more flirtatious. She's more of that, the new woman of the, of the new world. And you kind of see where those two different personalities, where that takes them throughout the movie. Uh, You know, poor, poor Lucy. I think it's kind of the book and the movie saying, if you are, uh, you know, a woman of the new world, then you're going to basically tragically die and become a blood-sucking vampire and eat babies. Yeah, I think it's more, with Lucy, it's more of a cautionary tale where she takes the idea of like the new woman, which means the more modern woman of the Victorian era, almost like first wave feminism. She took it as like more open, more promiscuous kind of way where she's She's got three men coming after her and less in the movie, but more in the book. She does at one point kind of lament, like, why can't I just have three husbands? I have three men that want to marry me. Why can't I marry all three? I'll be happy. They'll be happy. Mm -hmm. So I think it's more of a cautionary tale of letting women kind of be more free in that way. Being more flirtatious, you know, possibly like being more open sexually. That's more of the cautionary tale there where she ends up becoming a monster She has to be put down to protect the children in the area and make sure she isn't killing everybody. Whereas Mina gets put pretty much in the exact situation like she, at the end of the movie and in the end of the book, is also going to be turned into a vampire. Like, Dracula bit her three times. You know, she drank his blood. It was a whole thing. And she's able to be saved because instead of focusing her time and energy on flirting with men and being more desirable in that way, she honed her wit, she honed her skills, her intelligence, and she's able to ultimately kind of overpower Dracula and kind of be that final blow to kill him. Yeah, she basically, she initially rolled terrible on her wisdom check and then rolled like a straight up 20 at the end. Oh, yeah. That's the thing. And I think it's a really interesting question of whether Mina wanted to be turned into a vampire. She didn't. And that's, I think, an interesting question, especially when watching the movie. Because at first, when she meets Dracula in the streets of London, she is not interested. She turns him down and calls him, like, basically creepy and weird. Says, like, oh, I have a husband. Don't talk to me. And then slowly he starts to chip away at that with, like, pity. Until eventually she's fully charmed by him, head over heels in love with him, even after she's married. And it kind of becomes a question of, like, did she want to become a vampire? Did she actually love Dracula? Or was it just his power of persuasion and charm? But did Mina want that? Or did Elisabetta want that? Because she is the supposed reincarnation of Elisabetta, who was Dracula's wife. Yeah, and I think that's... The interesting twist in this version of the of the story in this movie because it becomes the question of is she actually the reincarnation of Elisabetta or is that 
just Dracula's pull? Like, is he implanting those memories of Transylvania in her mind or is she remembering them from a first life? It's it's a very good um, theory because is it really Elisabetta or because, I mean, obviously uh, Dracula has the powers of persuasion. He has multiple other powers as well. But who like who knows? I think it's whatever you decide is the case. Is she Elisabetta or is she is she just Mina? Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things with this movie is it gives you some of these kind of bigger questions and you have to just kind of think about it and ponder it after watching. For me, I tend to think it's just kind of more of a sign of Dracula being so persuasive and having those uh, those powers to kind of implant thoughts in people's minds. But I mean, even the end, it's kind of, I would say, a really nice like way to wrap things up where... He, at the beginning of the movie, is crying over Elisabetta's dead body, and that's where he becomes a vampire. And at the end, Mina's the one that has to kill him, and she's the one kind of crying over his dead body in the same exact spot thousands of years later. Now, do you think if he wasn't severely wounded, she would have killed him? I think so. You think so? Yeah, I think at that point in the movie, like, she definitely still was under his spell, but I think, again, the thing with Mina is her wit and intelligence. And I think even though, going back to like the D&D thing, like she rolled low on her wisdom score, I think her intelligence was high enough that she still knew what she had to do. She just knew that she had to be the one to do it because none of the men were going to be able to get close enough to him to hit that final blow. And also, I've always, when I was watching, because we both rewatched the movie last night, so it would be, you know, fresh in our mind. The one thing um, that I also noticed is, so you have this choice. You have Jonathan Harker, who is virtuous, sweet, kind, smart. And then you have Dracula, who is evil. And and of course, there is a lot of likability in him. But there's, the, there's that choice. Does she, does she go with Jonathan Harker? who might be a little bit more boring or Dracula, who's like, in a sense, the the bad boy. And I think a lot of times in movies and, and just in general, like there's always that cliche that women always fall for the bad boy. I don't know if that's necessarily a theme in this specific one. I mean, Mina kind of goes for both in the movie a little bit. I think that her kind of falling for Dracula, I think, is more... Again, a hallmark of his ability to charm and corrupt people. Because even in the beginning of the movie, when Jonathan is over in Romania and he is missing, she's still devoted to him until she starts to fall under Dracula's kind of power. Because even when she's around plenty of eligible men at Lucy's estate, She's only thinking of Jonathan. She's only talking about Jonathan. And the whole time she's kind of sitting there and kind of chuckling to herself about how open and like flirtatious Lucy is and how it's kind of crazy to think that someone she's so close to can be so different from her. And that just has to be something from being a noble woman and being from the aristocracy is just that openness and how she thinks that that's kind of strange to like be courting multiple men at the same time. And also in the movie, she does state that Jonathan is not very happy with her 
hanging around with Lucy, but she's she was friends with Lucy from a child and they're they're very, very close. You know, even when Lucy was very, very sick, she was still a good friend to Mina. Oh, yeah. And I, I think that says something too the fact that even though these women are, I think, kind of meant to be like symbolic, like foils of each other, like opposites in a way, they're still able to have a really deep and really platonic friendship. Like they really care about each other, even though they are so drastically different and come from such a different worlds and have different expectations in life. They're still able to really care for each other and really depend on each other, even pretty much until the end when Lucy passes and Mina's kind of left to take care of herself pretty much. That's one of my favorite things is just, and granted, it's only, you know, until Lucy starts to get sick, but just like the few scenes where they're just being friends and like frolicking in the rain and stuff. Like it's just a very, like a couple sweet moments throughout this like really tragic story. And I think it just goes to show that like, it doesn't matter what's going on. It's always important to hold the people dear to you close and try to take care of them as best you can, even if they're in like rough circumstances. I think it's something you can kind of pull away from that part, at least. Mm-hmm. But I think it also helps, too, that, again, they're supposed to be kind of like opposites and foils for each other where, you know, they're showing the different sides of the concept of like the new woman at the turn of the century. And the other thing um it does depict uh, Romani as not being good people. And that's that's throughout the throughout the movie book. And also, if you go into the Curse of Strahd, it's the same there as well. Yeah, I mean, again, I think that comes back to the source text, like the original Dracula book, because I think the book does a really great job of kind of encapsulating a lot of English people's kind of fears and anxieties of the world. You know, talking about, you know, the new modern woman of the time, the Victorian era, having more ability to do things on her own, get education, be more open in a lot of different aspects of life. But they were also really xenophobic and worried of kind of like reverse colonialism. Like they were worried of different people of different backgrounds, almost like invading the United Kingdom and London and England. and. That is shown throughout Dracula, throughout this movie too, this fear of kind of like the others. So the fear of the Romani people, the fear of people from Eastern Europe, almost a fear of Americans too. Just this idea that other people that might be culturally or racially different than them are going to come in and kind of take over their country. And that's always been a um, an issue that you see with England and in America as well, that xenophobia and that we unfortunately still have to this day. Exactly. And that isn't just, you know, fear of, you know, Eastern Europeans. Um, a lot of kind of scholars that have written on this and kind of analyzed Bram Stoker's Dracula, like the book, have said that there's also a lot of, and it's even really blatant, unfortunately, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in that book too, and kind of fears of specifically Eastern European Jews coming to England because they were having a massive like immigration of them to find safety in England. So unfortunately, Bram Stoker was definitely anti-Semitic and xenophobic, and it shows in his writings. And unfortunately, that's something that sounds like it was a typical viewpoint of a lot of like white 
English people was that fear of the unknown, the people that they don't understand or don't know and they don't want to. And I think this is a cautionary tale to be like, in their viewpoint, try to explain to them like why it's a bad idea for others to come in. Whereas now we know that that's not a problem and honestly usually helps a society or helps a culture kind of grow and expand. But definitely in you know the late 1800s, early 1900s in England, that was horrifying to them. They were more concerned about colonizing rather than kind of melding their cultures and learning from the cultures that they were unfortunately colonizing. That's true. But, you know, going back to um, Dracula, would you say that that's the, probably the first vampire? I don't know about the first, because vampire, like, folklore and legend has been around, I think, since the dawn of time, since we have a recorded record of stories. I think it's it's the archetype and kind of the jumping off point of the modern vampire, if that makes sense. So I feel like Dracula was a great way to kind of button up a lot of those more kind of spread out um, regional folklore. And Bram Stoker did a great job of kind of collecting a lot of those folk legends and lore, put them into one character. And then I think from there, that's where like the modern day vampire came from. Like, you can't tell me that Lestat is not, you know, directly, you know, inspired by Count Dracula. Oh, yeah. Lestat is definitely inspired by Dracula. And Dracula is inspired by real life Vlad the Tepish. And I also think Elizabeth Bathory. It's the jury's out on whether or not Bram Stoker actually like by name meant to have inspiration from them, but I think you could definitely pull some ideas from them. I know at least like the the term Dracula, like the name, that was something he a word he saw um in a library. He saw that word and it's specifically like a Romanian word for like devil. And they would use that as kind of like mentioning someone of power that was like bad and did a lot of like really brutal things. So you know, he pulled that. He pulled a lot of like Eastern European um, like folk tales and legends about similar kind of vampiric monsters. And on top of it, too, it's also a really interesting kind of critique on kind of society and where culture was going at the time, too. Because at the time you had kind of the clashing of like old values and old world views on things. And then you had the technology of the Victorian era. You know, they had the typewriter the daguerreotype and photography, wax cylinders, like all of these great like advancements in tech, but you also have all of these old cultural values and it was kind of like a clashing of the two and seeing which one will win out. And that's really, I think what Dracula is about is that clashing of old world versus new world and which one will survive or will either survive. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's definitely that old world, new world, which is going to win. Now, I do have a question that is, it's not a very serious question, Mm -hmm. but if you had to choose Jonathan Harker or Dracula, which would it be? Probably Jonathan. I don't want to, I don't want to be a vampire. (laughs) I would also have to choose Jonathan because I think he's not evil for one. Yeah. And as far as who would I lust for? That would probably be Dracula. But isn't that the point? Yes. I mean, vampires are supposed to be this, like, 
lustful, attractive, kind of alluring creature. That's part of their appeal is they have that really high charisma to just pull people in for a myriad of reasons. But I do think it's really interesting in the movie specifically, because I think they go a little bit more in depth with it, with kind of Mina falling for him. Because I think Mina's really interesting because she kind of represents a lot of different ideas in one character. And I think the movie does a great job of kind of showing them where, yeah, she's kind of the archetype of like, I guess, like the successful new woman or like the culturally appropriate, societally acceptable new woman. But she also kind of shows the follies of polite English society and how they can kind of fall for these old world trappings and the allure of like old money and old world things and kind of abandon the progress that they're making. And, you know, Winona as an actress, even though her accent was terrible, she she really did act the heck out of this role. Well, she's she's a great actress. Because she has that, she has that ability to be graceful and sweet, but also weird, like just weird and different and gothy. Oh, yeah. And this is like peak Winona Ryder, like 90s Winona is peak Winona. Yes, I agree. She just, she just nailed uh, out of the park on the movies that she did in the 90s. Yeah. And especially as Amina, I think she was like the perfect choice because again, she has that like classic like beauty to her where she definitely fits in as like a Victorian woman and I think her and period pieces are like the ultimate like perfect casting because nothing is better than Winona Ryder in like a late Victorian like bustle skirt but I think just also the way at the end where she kind of becomes this like really fierce like vampire hunter and she has to kind of wield a sword and be really forceful I think she does such a great job of doing both of those for the same character in the same movie and flawlessly transitioned from like being this demure, like really almost passive, you know, proper woman to being this unhinged, like vampire fledgling wielding a sword ready to like kill her husband. Yeah. And even when she's on her way to meet up with Dracula and she's using these powers to, to stop, Ben Helsing and Jonathan Harker from getting to Dracula. She's she's kind of like unhinged. Like her her hair goes from this like beautiful silky bun. And when she's with Dracula, her hair is like it's long, it's full, it's frizzy. So there's definitely like that that different look and style with her when she's with Dracula and without Dracula. Yeah, I know the movie at least was nominated for like best costume that year and they definitely deserve it. Like the sets are absolutely gorgeous. The costumes are really well done. Like I think it's just a very beautiful movie to look at. It is. And I love the shadow work. Oh my God. The dramatic lighting is gorgeous. Yes. So well done. You know, Dracula's costuming throughout the movie, whether old or young, is great. I've accepted the butt hair. It's, to me now, it's just, that's just old Dracula. That's the way he does his hair. But, at, you know, I think at first when I saw that movie, I was at like a preteen and I was like, he's got butt hair. Yeah, I I think that again is trying to call back to like old world, like maybe like how they dressed, you know, when he was, you know, in power. But yeah, it definitely looks like a, a big butt on his head. 
It does. And it's so like perfectly quaffed. And like there's there's not if you look at it close, there's no frizziness. It's just it's it's a perfect butt. (laughs) What I really like about the movie, too, is just like in the book. So the book is very fascinated with and mentions a lot like the main new technological advances of the time. And I absolutely adore that the movie kind of brought that in, too. Like the fact that blood infusions are a huge plot point in the book, but I also really like how they kind of show them in the movie as well. But also just like the little small tidbits of like Jonathan carrying a daguerreotype of Mina when he travels. The fact that Mina has a photograph of Jonathan. She's using a typewriter. You have the wax cylinders. You have the, you know, moving pictures that they go to see at the cinematograph. Like, I think it's a really cool piece of the book that they did take because the book does focus a lot on mentioning and kind of name dropping a lot of these new technological advances for the time because that was such a huge thing for British citizens to see all of this new advancements going on. And do you think that if Dracula did not know of Mina that Jonathan would have become another Renfield? No, I think I think Jonathan was too strong-willed. Mm-hmm. Personally, and I think that's why Dracula left him in Transylvania with his wife so they could just drain him of his blood and kill him or keep him prisoner there for as long as they wanted him. Because he, unlike Renfield, who willingly gave pretty much his soul, he sold his soul to Dracula essentially to become his, you know, little henchman. I think Jonathan was too strong willed because in his mind, his goal was to always get back to London to get to Mina. Mm hmm. So I don't think there was any corruptible force that could have stopped him from doing that. I mean, he literally crawled out of like a a hole in the side of the castle wall and had to scale like this steep wall and ended up falling into a river just to get out and escape and try to get back to Mina any means necessary. And also, I think Dracula kept him there to keep him away from Mina. Oh, exactly. Because, I mean, his plan was to marry her. and. I think that's it's interesting. It's a really bad time to to be in real estate. Yeah. Cuz that's what he was there for was to um to sell the this all this property in London. I definitely wouldn't want to be a real estate agent in that book or movie. Oh no. Yeah. Cuz you'll either end up in a mental asylum or being drained of your blood by a bunch of vampire women. Yeah. And you know, end up with like really gray hair although gray hair is popular now yeah don't hate on it i've got plenty of gray hair you have dyed gray hair i do i have like <laughs> it's like purpley gray hair i love it it's as, as crazy as i can get with my job because i really wanted to do like purple hair and they're like mm-hmm. and i'm not allowed so this is my um kind of giving them the finger without losing my job <laughs> very fair well jonathan was definitely he knew that in the in the 2020s gray hair would be in he was a trendsetter he was he was a total trendsetter in the 1890s <laughs> uh-huh that gray hair was hot i don't know he had like the surfer boy like bowl cut in the movie which again was like a huge popular haircut for the time you know long on top with like the undercut so not wrong just 
I see where you get the like surfer boy Keanu Reeves vibes because it's Keanu Reeves, one of the thickest Southern Californian accents out there. And he's got the like long bangs. He was, I mean, he was really young. He, you know, that's just, that's just his aesthetic. He's, you know, definitely, obviously from California. And the movies that he did prior, that was, that was his niche, you know, to be this like cool surfing dude. I, I will say that as Keanu's career has grown, so has his acting. And I'm very impressed with him in his um, growth in his acting career. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say it. I think they did a great job casting Keanu Reeves with Jonathan. I, I wouldn't want it to be anyone else, honestly. I think he did a great job. Same. I mean, you know, he, he does. He plays like this sweet, innocent. Like, he, he pulls that off so well. Like, you know, you just want to, like, like, squeeze him because he's so, uh, you know, cute and sweet in that movie. Oh, yeah. And he's so devoted. Like, you can tell that he is devoted to protect Mina at any cost necessary. And I just... He did such a great job kind of portraying all of that, the sweetness, the innocence, the fierce protective nature that he has for Mina and wanting to make sure she's safe and okay. And Gary Oldman it was a great actor when he was a baby. Let's just face it. He he was meant to be an actor. Oh yeah, and I think with this movie what I also find really really cool is Obviously, like the epitome of, you know, everyone's favorite Dracula is Bela Lugosi. He is the classic Dracula. He inspired all kinds of things. I mean, you have Bela Lugosi is dead by Bauhaus, which helped start goth. Like, Bela Lugosi is like the standard for Dracula. But what I really like about Gary Oldman's is he takes a lot of elements of that, but he has such a different take on Dracula that I find really refreshing and I feel like was like a huge game changer, especially for the early 90s. Because I feel like if you're doing a Dracula movie, a lot of them, a lot of previous Draculas after Bela Lugosi just tried to be Bela Lugosi. And I like that Gary Oldman wanted to be his own version of Dracula and not just be Bela Lugosi, but in a wig. Yes, and he did He did a perfect job. And of course you have uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Oh my God! Yes, he is the ideal Van Helsing. He's a he's amazing. He played Van Helsing. I I mean, there's a lot of comedy to his Van Helsing character, and I did notice um, in the movie, and I just noticed this last night that the priest in the beginning of the movie with uh, Dracula when he comes back and he's you know his Elizabetta is dead. That is also. Anthony Hopkins. So I, I'd be very interested to research to see if that priest was a Van Helsing or if that's just Anthony Hopkins wanting to play another role. I mean, it also could be a like a slight nod to the fact that Van Helsing has been searching for Dracula his whole life. I mean, that is his number one, his big bad that he has been hunting for his whole career as like a monster hunter. So it could be like an interesting nod to the fact that maybe his family is from the same region or from a close by region. And it's been like a generational thing that all of his family members have been hunting for Dracula to kill him. And I think that'd be that's a really nice, like subtle way to kind of suggest that. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I love Anthony Hopkins. He's just he's just an 
excellent actor. And I and I like that he kind of makes Van Helsing a little insane. I mean, yeah, I think even in the books, well, in the book, he's definitely on the unhinged side of things. Like, he's very smart and knowledgeable, but definitely a little unhinged. But I do like that he is also kind of the comic relief in the movie, especially towards the end when the tension's rising. Mina's been bitten. They're trying to dramatically find Dracula and kill him. Anthony Hopkins, I think, does a great job of kind of breaking that tension at certain points with his quippy little one-liners. Yes. Well, the the one that I I, I laugh the most every time, and it's, he says, I want you to bring me a set of post-mortem knives. And Arthur says, you want to autopsy Lucy? And he's like, not exactly. I just want to cut off her head and take out her heart. And, and I, like every time I, I crack up because I'm just like, that's so forward. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a nicer way you could have put that. <laughs> mm-hmm. I will say the di- one of the differences from the book to the movie that I wish they played a bit more on was Lucy being the blue for lady. And I get why they didn't because that wasn't necessary to the main plot of the movie itself. But I think that's such an interesting little bit from the book that I think would have even just like a little bit more because you get a little taste of it with her and her like white wedding dress and her pale ghastly face and she's carrying that frightened child down to her crypt but I feel like they could have easily put in just like a little like couple minute scene or even just children you know like singing to the blue for a lady and trying to talk to her as she's coming down with the screaming child something because I think that seems really interesting of the fact that you can really see how much of an absolute monster she is. Yeah, I mean, when she comes down those stairs with that baby, she's frightening. It's like a complete change of the original Lucy. She's definitely, one, in my opinion, one of the most misunderstood characters and definitely one of the more, most victimized characters in the book and the movie. What do you mean by she's misunderstood? Well, again, going back to, you know, oh, she's just a flirt. I really think that Lucy, before she becomes a vampire, a Nosferatu, that she actually is quite innocent and sweet. She's just, a, you know, a woman of the new age. She's, she's noble. She, she, she knows she's spoiled. But she's, she's quite sweet and innocent in my personal opinion. I get what you're saying. I don't know if I 100% agree. I think I think she's definitely sweet, but she still kind of falls into that very like flirtatious thing. And I think that's really, um, from what I've read and seen, that was kind of Stoker's main point, was that she's kind of like the negative sides of like the new woman movement and the idea of the new new woman. She's the overly open woman. She's flirting with three men at the same time. She, in the book, laments about not being able to marry all three of them and have three husbands. And it's more of the cautionary tale of, if you let women be loose in this way, it's going to be bad. They're going to turn into monsters. It's, it's going to be bad for all of us, especially for men in society. Whereas if you're more like Mina, where you let them be more intelligent or learn different skills in that kind of way and let women kind of experience like learning and education that's better but as long as they're not sleeping with a bunch of men or being over flirtatious because that's bad 
Right. And I think that's my, I think that's my whole point is that that's always been an uh, issue for women throughout history. And even to this day, if you are promiscuous or if you're flirtatious, then you, you know, then there's the slut shaming. There's, um, you know, you deserve to be victimized because of what you wore. You know, that still goes on to this day. And it, it, to me, it, it, with that character, it just, it, it just rings that bell for me. You know, how women have been treated throughout history. So I, that's why I feel that I like, I, I really feel for her character because I don't think she's an evil person. She's just flirty. She's just, she wants what she wants. She's spoiled. And I think that the thing is she, she does not deserve what happens to her. Oh no, definitely not. I think that's the way to look at it from the modern perspective. Cause I agree with you too, especially in the movie when Dracula like turns her and like bites her. She is charmed by him. She did not choose to go out into into the garden to go see him. Like she didn't want to do that. He f- kind of forced her into it. So it kind of again becomes a question of was it something she actually was looking to do or was it again his mani- manipulative tactics and abilities kind of rearing their head again? I think it was 100% manipulation and uh him using his powers on her because at the end of that scene, she's she's so confused. She's like, I don't, I don't understand what just happened. And he manipulated Mina to forget what she saw. Uh, I don't know if it was that. He more manipulated her to not see him because he didn't want her to see him in that way, in like his bestial form. He wanted her, her first impression of him to be in this regal prince kind of look. So... I think that was kind of the whole thing with him just saying, like, don't see me, is he didn't want that to spoil his kind of reveal of his, like, more, like, beautiful self in, like, the next scene when he planned to kind of bump into her on the street. And when Dracula does come to Mina when she's in the asylum, there's, like, that that mixed love and hate initially because she's like, you killed Lucy. And she like beats on him. But then I think he manipulates her back into what he wants her to be. But there, I do wonder though if, because he does try to stop her from being what he is. Is that a, a moment of purity or is that manipulation? Honestly, I think that was a moment of like his long since dead human side rearing its head from the dead one last time because he he thinks about it because his life is death and pain and blood he's a predator he has to sustain life by killing other living humans and for a hot second as she's starting to drink his blood he realizes that this isn't what he wants for the woman that he has loved for centuries so i think it's more he had like a, a moment of that human side coming back to life. And then she is so far charmed by him that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he's telling her to stop. She's going to continue because that's pretty much what he's implanted in her mind that she wants. Yeah. So I did see in that that brief moment, uh, like a human side to to him, but it doesn't last very long. No. 
And of course, at the at the end, I think that was a very human moment too, with with Dracula, wanting it to be done. Yeah, and that's what I really liked about again how the movie started and ended, how it almost like a big cycle where it started almost in a very similar setup with him renouncing God because of you know Elizabetta killing herself with false information. Again, that like Romeo and Juliet thing. Well, mainly it was because they were told that that her soul is forsaken because she committed suicide. Exactly. So he, you know, he forsakes God, becomes a vampire in this dramatic scene. And then at the end, it's almost like the reverse where Mina now gets to live on and have, you know, a semblance of a normal life and be able to experience love and all the things that come with it with Jonathan. But she has to kill off Dracula to be able to do that and be able to actually survive and not become a vampire just like him. Because that's the only way that she could live is killing him. Exactly. And I think that's a really beautiful way to kind of make the movie start and end almost in the exact situation, but reversed for those two characters. Yeah. I've never read the book, to be honest with you, but do they go into like what happens with Mina and Jonathan Harker afterwards? So at the end of the book, spoiler warning, I guess, but if you have not read Dracula by this point, where have you been? <laughs> it's published in the 1890s. But at the end, it ends with Jonathan, I believe, writing in his journal, seven years post everything that happened, discussing how him and Mina have a son together. So it does kind of have a happy ending for some characters bunch die along the way but at least for Jonathan and Mina it does have a semblance of a happy ending well that's that's good I'm glad that they went on and they had a child of their own and but uh they probably had some issues afterwards oh they definitely would have needed therapy (laughs) yeah lots and lots of therapy probably had to leave London (laughs) probably everybody involved but Van Helsing needed therapy I mean, I think Van Helsing needed therapy, let's be real. <laughs> True. I well, I just think it made makes him more quirky, you know, the more Oh yeah. The more shit he sees, it makes him just quirky. But I you know, I'm I'm glad that they because I have not read Dracula. I I actually got audibles and um starting to listen to books. I'm better with the audible than the reading. So uh, it's definitely on my list to to listen to. Yeah, and I think the book is really interesting. And I, again, one of the things I thought was really cool with the movie, kind of pulling from the book, is the fact that most of the narration is through like Mina or Jonathan's um, diary entries and journal entries, because that is how the book is written. It is not a coherent like story text. It is all taken place through Mina's diary, Jonathan's journal. You have the sea captain's logs. Things like that. So it's not like a there's one main character, one narrator. It's all of these different little pieces of text, almost like you're reading through like a like a file at the like a police report or something of what happened, which I think is a really interesting way to kind of show the narrative. And I love that the movie hearkened back to that by having all of the different narrators kind of like reading from their journals. Yeah. And, you know, especially with like the the ship log, the captain's ship log, it's terrifying because it he say, keeps saying people are disappearing. We think there's somebody on the ship. Yeah, there's somebody on the ship. All right. 
is Dracula. Oh, exactly. I can't remember who did this, but there was, I think, a publishing company or something like that that did a really interesting take on the Dracula book where instead of having it be a bound book that you read through, you get a a wooden crate, a literal wooden crate mailed to you. And inside, they have all of these little artifacts and all these little things in there. So you have a copy of Mina's diary. You have a copy of Jonathan's travel log. You have Van Helsing's notes. You have the doctor's like medical notes and records, like all of these different pieces that put the narrative together in the story, just separated out into actual like physical copies of them that are separate. So you have to go through all of this together to put the story together. Yeah. And I, I like the I like the way that that was done. Um, a real real genius on Bram Stoker. Yeah, and I feel like also because um, I know at the time people were not like huge on the book, so I think it's a good way to make it a little easier on the writer to make a narrative without having to have a consistent main character. Because I think the story is so strong because you have so many different viewpoints of what's going on, and it's a great way to make sure that the reader can see what's going on with Jonathan in Romania. Mina in London, Ben Helsing through his travels. And it gives you the ability to see the whole story without having just one narrator tell you from one point of view. Because mm-hmm. the story would not make sense if you just heard it from Mina or just from Jonathan because they're separated for so long. And it, it also shows the, the love that they have for each other. Because she's, she wants, as soon as she gets the letter from the nuns, she's off. And she goes to see him and marry him, even though she's kind of being manipulated and pulled to think of her prince. She is strong enough to to silence that enough to go be with Jonathan. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, it's that classic, like, gothic trope of, like, love, you know, everlasting, like this strong love that can withstand even the horrors of death keeping them together and making sure that they're always find each other. Yes, it's so very romantic, and I love it. In a blood-covered death kind of way. <laughs> yes, it's the kind of romance I like, though. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I like a little blood in my romance. <laughs> little evil. It's okay. Okay. Well, I think that wraps up our episode. I was talking about Bram Stoker's Dracula, the beautiful, campy, cult classic of the 90s. Thanks for listening, guys, and stay spooky. Um.